Let's get started. Take your Bibles. Let's open them to Proverbs chapter 6, please. Proverbs 6. That's on page 991 in that book rack Bible in front of you. If you picked up an outline on the way in or if you'd like to open your Three Crosses app, you can find an outline there. You can follow along what we're going to learn this morning. We're wrapping up our little mini-series in the book of Proverbs. We've been six weeks in this book. We're in a series called The Good Life. It's the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Beautiful books that remind us where wisdom comes from, the benefits of wisdom, and Proverbs has sort of laid the groundwork in saying that a life of wisdom comes first from fearing the Lord, knowing the Lord, having a greater fear for the Lord in your life than anything else. That's the key to a wisdom-filled life, and that's the key to a good life. Proverbs tells us that if you do life the way God wants you to do life, your life is going to come out calculably better than had you not lived your life according to these principles. And so we've been seeing this in the book of Proverbs. When you do things God's way, your life's going to come out better. That's the good life. Now, some of you right now are arguing with me in your mind. You're saying, wait a minute, I've done what God wanted me to do, and my life's not turned out so good. Well, you got to stick around for Ecclesiastes. <laughs> There's a lot more about wisdom than just what Proverbs is telling us. But that's the big idea in the book of Proverbs. Now today we're going to look at the importance of wisdom in uh, helping us develop and actually more protect our, uh, our character. Uh, God wants to build character into our lives. And when you think about character, character is a huge, huge study. I've written a few words down in my notes about what character is. Character are things like trustworthiness and honesty, uh, justice, morality, uh, being thoughtful, being humble, uh, being loyal being respectful, being compassionate, having integrity. These are all words that are just synonymous with character, a life of character. And hopefully, you're wanting to build a life of character because there's a lot of people in the world today that don't really care about character. Our culture doesn't really prize character. Character is kind of a, uh, uh, it, it's become a rare species in our culture. And even in the church, we don't seem to be that concerned about character, all those attributes that I've just shared right here. And Proverbs is telling us that there is a way to maintain character, and it comes through a life filled with wisdom. And let's read uh, this morning from Proverbs 6, and we're going to see three aspects, or what I'm going to call character assassins, things that are going to really chip away and erode at our character. And there's just three of them. And uh, they open up a lot of avenues, and it's not an exhaustive list, but let's, let's follow along. Let's read beginning in verse 1. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have struck hands in pledge for another, if you have been trapped by what you said, ensnared by the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, to free yourself, since you have fallen into your neighbor's hands. Go and humble yourself. Press your plea with your neighbor. Allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander or overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer, gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? 
When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit, and scarcity like an armed man. A scoundrel and villain who goes out with a corrupt mouth, who winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, and motions with his fingers, who plots evil with deceit in his heart. He always stirs up dissension. Therefore, disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. All right. Now that's, that's a, just a picture of three things that can erode a person's character. Now we're going to look at these three things today in kind of a rapid fire motion. And if you're taking notes, the first thing I want you to see from verses 1 through 5 is that indebtedness is a character assassin. Indebtedness. Now, you kind of probably wondered what all this thing is about putting up security for your neighbor if you've struck hands in pledge. What is this talking about? This is talking about uh, careless, uh, careless debt. It's talking about not thinking through financial obligations. Have you ever wanted to help someone get a loan because their credit wasn't quite what it needed to be? Or have you ever been a little flush with cash and felt sorry for your friend who's always struggling to make ends meet and thought it would be nice to help them get that thing that they wanted or even needed? As admirable as those, you know, aspirations might be, this text is saying you better think about it before you step into that kind of situation. The trouble that the text is referring to is debt, specifically, if you're taking notes, careless debt. Now, now we live in a free economy, and every free economy has ways of procuring loans and co-signing and contracts and all of these things. Uh, nothing wrong. The Bible does not condemn any of that. The Bible's not condemning debt. This text is simply saying, you better be careful if you float people money or cash thinking you're helping them out when in, in another sense you're actually putting yourself into a real dilemma. I hear stories like this one uh, from time to time where a junior in college, the, the, his best friend's roommate, uh, his best friend who is also his roommate, uh, can't get his loan papers for his next semester, and they're great friends, and so he puts his name on a cosign uh, so that that person can get the student loan. And, and the, his friend is grateful, and he's thinking all along, well, this is just going to boost the person's credit a little bit, never knowing that his name on that cosign actually makes him responsible for the debt. And then after graduation, when they're no longer friends, they had a you know, little you know, parting of ways, and uh, a couple of years down the road, while he's in his first job and he's working along, suddenly this loan agency is calling about the debt that he co-signed for. And that happens all the time with people. In a crowd this size, there's people that are carrying the debt of somebody else because you just too quickly didn't think it through, and you put your name on the dotted line. 
and you are regretting that. That's a terrible, terrible situation to be in. And, you know, I, I hate to, you know, have you come to church and have this reminded, you know, situation. Uh, but, but the point is this. The, the point is we have to be careful not to be foolish with, with debt. Impulsively loaning money to someone who isn't likely to pay it back we must do everything, the Bible says, we must do everything we can if you've made that commitment to undo that commitment. Now, there's a problem, isn't there? Because promises mean something. When you make a promise to somebody to help them and then you want to renege on that promise, doesn't sound very good, does it? God wants us to keep our promises. And that's why this is a character-eroding issue. Because in the end, sometimes it looks like you're the one that doesn't have character when you're trying to simply free yourself from someone else who's been a bad risk in your life. So I don't know. This applies. This is not business loans. This is, this is uh, friend loans, family member loans. Th this is where it gets really messy and really sometimes uh, not so uh, friendly, not so good. Uh, think of a couple other places in Proverbs. I think they may be in your notes. Proverbs eleven fifteen. He who puts up security for another will surely suffer, but whoever refuses to strike hands in pledge is safe. You see, this idea of striking hands is kind of like, hey, I'm in a bind. I'm really in trouble. Can you help me out? Uh, yeah, sure. You know, it's just like, just this not really thinking it through, this quick striking of hands, this quick deal-making, this quick, yeah, we can, we can work this out. Proverbs 17, 18, a man lacking in judgment strikes hands in pledge and puts up security for his neighbor. Uh, Proverbs 22, 26, do not be one who strikes hands in pledge or puts up security for debts. Um, one commentator wrote this. He said, historically, the warnings in Proverbs regarding loans and co-signing were never interpreted as a basis for legal or moral restrictions on credit, either from the side of lenders or borrowers. They were regarded as cautionary advice and as an, and as an uh, exhortation to financial independence and avoidance of risk, particularly for people who are not in the business of managing risk. Now, if that's your business, if you're a loan agency, if that's your life work or whatever, you are in the business of managing risk and deciding risk. But most of us are not. And if you're not, the Bible says, you better think that through really carefully when you hand out money, unless, of course, you just don't care about money uh, and that you don't feel like you need. So here's the point. This is what wisdom says. If you're taking notes, wisdom says, don't foolishly take on debt that you don't need to or can't afford. Now let's just talk, let's, let's extrapolate just for a minute because debt is a problem with a lot of people. Now I'm going to just go off mark for just a moment and just talk about the problem of debt in our culture. Uh, the average credit card debt in our culture is about uh, $16,000 per household. $16,000 of credit card debt. Um, if you just have $10,000 in credit card debt and you're paying an average of 15%, you know how long it'll take you if you just pay the minimum balance to pay off that card? 28 years. And you will have paid $12,000 in interest on $10,000 of debt. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it doesn't at all. But you know what? That's the average debt in our culture. Credit card debt is killing people right and left. I mean, literally. Their lives are strapped. Um, now, you can't avoid certain kinds of debt. You know, you don't have enough cash to buy a car. You have a loan payment. All of this is calculable by your income and all that. I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here. 
But I'm just saying that the, the, the problem in our culture is huge when it comes to debt. Now, here's a little pastoral exhortation here, is that if you're carrying debt today, you need to that's a spiritual issue. You need to get before God and say, God, how can I reduce this debt? I'm not talking, you know, we've got home loans, you've got car loans, you've got things that you've calculated risk. It's in your, your, your monthly payments and all. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about careless, foolish spending. And that can also be in things like cars and luxuries and things that we like. But where we mound up debt, where we can't do things to boost the kingdom of God, we can't support kids that are going to camp, we can't do those kinds of things because we are so tied up with debt. And we've got a ministry here in our church, it's called Budget Coaching. We've got people that have financial you know, knowledge, experience that would love to sit down with you and help you get your life back on track and reduce debt in your life. You should take advantage of some of those resources. There are places in our communities. There's, you can go online and find lots of organizations that will actually help you reduce and bring debt down in your life. And some of us need to do that. That's an action point for some of us here today. Now, I maybe, you maybe drifted for a second, so if you have, list, listen to me quick, quickly and clearly. I'm not saying we can't give away or lend freely without desire for repayment, okay? If that's who you are, if you have a certain amount of disposable income, or even if you want to take out of your savings, if you love giving and supporting others and helping them without any desire for return on your investment uh, or, or even payback, that's fine. The Bible says be generous. That's a beautiful thing, right? But wisdom says be careful not to put yourself in a bad situation. Now, thinking about debt and, and uh, all of this, I, I was thinking about the gospel message. Now, let's remember what Jesus did for us. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become, what? Rich. You know, this is the, this is the Savior we serve today. Uh, you talk about risk management. I mean, Jesus had nothing. There was no investment. There was no return on the investment Jesus made. Yet Jesus in his riches became poor so that we could, might become rich in him. It's a beautiful thing to remember that this is the Lord that we serve today. He's a God that is generous. He's a God that wants to meet your needs. And I'm not talking just about financial needs. He wants to meet your spiritual needs. You might be sitting here today and kind of trying to figure out Christianity or whatever. Picture a Savior who has all the riches of heaven, who comes and lives in a human form and gives his life as a sacrifice for our sins, rises from the grave after dying himself so that we, when we go through death, can be assured that we will live forever. This is the gospel. The gospel promises eternal life to anyone who believes. And so, you know, when you come to a text as seemingly, you know, uh, uh, a little bit, you know, hard to understand, or geez, well, how does this apply to my life? Well, it certainly it applies to the issue of how we spend our money, but it, it has a bigger arc in the picture and the story of what God was willing to do for us in actually taking care of our debt, our sin debt, by His blood, His sacrifice. Amen? Aren't you glad for that? Now, it's a character erosive, uh, corrosive, when we, when we lend foolishly, when we don't uh, manage our finances well. But there's another character assassin that can happen too, and I see here in this text, verses 6 through 11, and that is laziness. 
is also a character assassin, laziness. Um, now, the Bible talks about work in lots of ways, and I want to just put heads up here. The Bible does not support workaholism, okay? Uh, there's a lot of people that kind of pin on their workaholism. Well, God wants me to be industrious, and He wants me to work hard, and yeah, and you're killing your family, and you're ruining your marriage, and you're, you know, you're up to your neck and stuff, and you know, just the Bible doesn't condone a workaholism attitude, but the Bible also commends a hard work ethic, working hard. In fact, the Bible says that if a man doesn't eat, uh, doesn't work, he shouldn't eat, okay? That might be good for some of us. Uh, lazy, and that's talking in the context of being lazy, just saying, well, I, you know, I could work. There's some people who really want to work, and they, they can't. There's a disability issue, or there's a health issue or something going on. I'm not addressing that. I'm just saying that there are some people who can work, they're physically able to work, they're mentally able to work, and they're just choosing not to work. The Bible takes that very seriously. It's, it's a part of our character to work and to work hard, whoever you are. Um, I like what uh, Proverbs uh, 10.4 says, lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. Uh, Proverbs 26.15 says, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. Oh, this is, <laughs> this is such a great picture. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He's too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. Isn't that great? You can just picture, I'm so starving. I'm just, ah, I just can't deal with this. <laughs> and I love how the Proverbs uses that word sluggard. That's just a great, great word picture right there. So it compares hard work to this little creature called an ant. I did, some, I did a little research on ants just because it kind of tweaked me a little bit. I'm like, why did, why did Solomon choose the ant? Well, ants are amazing. Um, some ant species can lift 100 times their own body weight upside down while walking on glass. So that would be like me being, I weigh 154 pounds. I know I look a lot bigger, but I'm 154 pounds. That would be like me being able to lift 15,400 pounds, you say, well, I think he could do it, <laughs> but walking on glass upside down, I don't think so. Ants are the longest living of all insects. Do you know that many ants uh, li species live up to 30 years? I read that statistic. You know, it makes you think the next time you want to smoosh one. You know, like with a fly, it's what, like what, 15 days or something like that or less? Um, fire ants cause an estimated of $5 billion in damage each year in North America. All worker and soldier ants are female. Just saying. <laughs> ants do sleep frequently. Do you know this? Uh, in a 24-hour period of time, they, they go through 253 sleep cycles, <laughs> lasting about a minute each. It totals four hours out of 24 hours. That's kind of cool. You just have a little minute nap every, you know, 253 times a day. All right, I'm, I'm being goofy with ants, but here's, here's, here's what wisdom says. You can learn a lot by observing ants. Let's do that right now. Let's observe some ants. I found some clips here. This is going to be fun. Watch this. Check this out. Now, here's an ant. Look at that. Now, some of you are worried 
That's a bee pretending to be dead um, <laughs> just for the sake of this documentary. But look at the size of that. That is like me trying to carry like Shaq O'Neal across the basketball court. Look at this. Look at these ants. They're creating a barrier. And then all these guys, these guys are late for work. They are, I should say, these girls are late for work. Look at that. They're going crazy. Got to get to work. Got to get to work. Move out of the way. I mean, that's a busy lunchroom there where they're all working. I mean, when you look at ants and how they work, it is amazing. Now, this next little clip you're going to see about ant, look at this. You talk about, okay, we got to, guys, we got to move this centipede. So let's chain up and work together. You know, you look at that, and so you see how ants, you know, just these little creatures, they figure out how to work in, in tandem with each other. They realize that they can do more with someone else than by themselves. They're incredibly strong. They're industrious. They go after it. And I think when Solomon was, was thinking about, how do I compare someone who really works hard with some kind of creature that we observe? I don't know. Maybe there was a lot of ants around where Solomon was writing or something. He thought, yeah, that'll do. Work says a lot about our character. I've often said to people, if you want to stand out as a Christ follower, you should be the best employee in your company. You should be a person that people look at and say, man, you know, not like you're always trying to undercut others, you're trying to get to the top, you know, and you're, you're knocking people over along. No, you're like the, you're staying the longest if you need to, and you're not being a workaholic, you're, you're putting in the time, you're eager to do more than what's in your job description. Let's just, this is so obvious. You know, and, and everyone that work. how many of you work, uh, how many of you are working right now? You're just, you're in a working employment relationship. Okay, good. Now, you know in your environment where you're working, there's somebody that has a reputation of not working, right? <laughs> now, you know, as soon as I started talking about this, you know exactly who that person is. You're thinking about them, right? And if you can't think about who that person is, it, it might be you. Um, I don't know, just saying, think about it. But you know, it's a terrible character erosion when we don't work like we ought to. And, and you know, there's a lot behind why a person works hard in terms of their character than just the fact that they have a good work ethic. There's honesty, there's uh, goodwill, there's oftentimes fairness or just, justice, there's compassion behind all that. All these beautiful character traits kind of come out in a good work ethic. So you peel the layers back and you see why working hard is part of what Solomon talks about here in terms of the kind of character that we have to be developing in our lives. And so uh, if you have a lazy reputation, that's got to get turned around. You can be a Christ follower and have that reputation, but you need to deal with that, and you need to get some accountability in your life, talk to somebody in your life, because you should be a good worker. You should be someone that you're, you can go as far as you possibly can in your company because you are a person who definitely works hard. And by the way, if you're not working, if you're a student, you're living at home or whatever, that work ethic can come out in your studies. It can come out in your, uh, your uh, responsibility at home, how you handle your 
space, how you deal with the stuff that you have in your life, all of that is a part of a work ethic. Your schedule, when you sleep, when you get up, what you go after. I know students that just are so studious. They just, they put in the time. It's like a job. And if you're not working, you want to work, then your job is looking for work. And so you're up every day. You're out pushing the resumes. You're looking, you know, you're, you're, you're a person that is engaged. That's a character issue. And some of us are just, you know, void on that issue in our lives. I, I meet people uh, often that, uh, and I'm sure you have too, homeless people that are not with uh, resources. And, and a lot of times those people are kind of like down the chain of generations of people who have not shown work, not uh, given examples of work. And, and, and that's not everybody's case, and I'm not trying to be judgmental. Everybody's got a story, but I'm just saying there's a lot of us who are in really dire situations in part because others have not imparted to us what's been necessary, but also because we've perpetrated decisions, done things that have kept us in places of non-viability in work. And I, you know, I think it's, it's something that the church needs to consider, the, the body of Christ. We should be known for the best workers on the planet, whatever we do. You know, your bosses ought to be sitting around, who... Who are the Christians in our company? They'd be way better in this situation. I mean, you know, uh, just important. Okay, the last little area here, it's actually, it, this is the area that now we go into a little tunnel here, and it's going to just, it's just going to expand huge. So I'm going to make some comments about it, and it's going to go real quick. But verses 12 through 19, I'm going to call this deceitfulness as a, as a character assassin. And I know that's pretty simple, but you know, you read these words, look at, um, you know, you read the language of verse 16, there are six things the Lord hates. It's kind of hard to envision God hating anything, right? Because God is love. But we forget that hate and love really go together. Because you can't love something or someone without hating whatever it is that destroys that love, right? And this, this is, God has a very pure hate, if I can put it that way. God, our hate is very vindictive, it's very childish, it's miserly, it's based on a lot of fleshy things, where God's hate is pure. And all what we read here and in other places, wherever God hates something, is because it violates His love or it violates His plan or His purposes for our lives. And so wisdom says in this passage, and we're going to dig into it, but wisdom says, guard your heart against the things that God hates. What are the things that God hates? The first thing God hates revolves around a kind of persona that is full of deceit and corruption. And notice the body parts mentioned here beginning in verses 12 through 15. Uh, his mouth is corrupt. Speech that's coarse, foul, tells lies, slanderous, gossip, full of dissension, spouts off anger. All these things come natural to the scoundrel and the villain. You know, this past week, one of our pastors pulled me aside. He said, hey, I got a story for you. I was at the gym the other day, and he said there was a guy that was just foul, foul mouth, just, just, just lighting it up with every word on the planet that was foul or coarse. And he felt, this pastor telling me, felt convicted about this in terms of, I think last Sunday we left with the, like, let's be bold and let's assert, you know, uh, with grace, let's assert into situations and so he took that and so he 
he said, he said, I need to talk to this guy. And he, he did his workout. And then, he, you know, he started chickening out, right? And it's like, I, I can know exactly how this feels. And, but so he prayed. He said, Lord, if you want me to talk to him, you're going to have to put him right next to me to do that. So he walks in, you know, he goes through his workout, doesn't see the guy again, goes into the sauna, and as he walks into the sauna, this guy walks in, boom. <laughs> okay, Lord. So he says, hey, hey, man, you know, and so he just graciously says, you know, this is going to maybe sound a little weird, but I, you know, when I came in the gym this morning, you were just, wow, I just, I couldn't believe the words that were coming out and just, and, and he graciously, but just kind of confronted the guy, and the guy said, oh, man, he goes, I'm sorry, he goes, I'm a Christian, and, and this pastor, my friend, is going like, what? <laughs> and I thought, okay, so Christian, maybe this guy is a Christian, I don't know. But wasn't it beautiful that God put someone like this pastor alongside of him to say, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on here with your language? And then this guy says, you know, this was a big kind of a, a wake-up call for him in that moment. That's a good reminder why we should sometimes graciously speak out in settings where people could hear the correction or the, or the beauty of what God has for them. And it was a very redemptive conversation, and, and God used it. Uh, but God has a lot to say about speech, our mouth. I've got some other verses there. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. What is our speech like? Uh, chapter 16 of Proverbs, verse 27, a scoundrel plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. Um, our speech, our language, what kind of words are coming out of our mouth? Wisdom says character thinks about that. Um, let's move on just for sake of time. Uh, our speech, what about our eyes? Our, our eyes betray ulterior motives. Notice some of the words describing what the eyes do. To wink here in verse 13. He winks with his eye. Uh, this word in the, in the original language can also mean to squint or to furrow the brow or, and it may be something like a, 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 an envious look or a betrayal look or perhaps uh, even a, a, an angry look. You know, our eyes say a lot about what we're thinking, right? You can look in a person's eyes and kind of see what they're thinking a lot of times. Our eyes reveal this. And Proverbs 16.30 says, He who winks with his eyes is plotting perversity. He who purses his lips is bent on evil. It's like our facial expressions sometimes give way to the fact that we're not really being people of character. There's a, there's a problem going on deep down. What about our feet? Verse 13b, His feet give evidence of unrest. Signaling, signaling of the feet means his feet are uh, agitated, shuffling, shifting back and forth in uneasiness. Maybe an idea of leaving the path. We all leave the path. Someone told me this morning, hey, I got off the path this week. You know, we get off the path. Our feet are a part of taking us off our path. Our feet uh, remind us that they take us where we go, sometimes where we should not go, sometimes where we should refrain from going. Um, Proverbs chapter 1, you remember where Solomon says to his son, My son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their paths, speaking of the wicked influences. For their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed blood. Psalm 17, 5, the psalmist says, My feet have held to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Psalm 37, 31, the law of God is in his heart. His feet do not slip. This is speaking of a person with character, a person who has a heart for God. Um, so, uh, mouth, eyes, feet, 
Uh, look at fingers, verse 13. His fingers motion and signal. <laughs> you know, I thought all cultures have hand and finger gestures which are meant to throw dispersions on others. Have you noticed that? I mean, which one of us have not at one point in our lives been given the finger? Or we've been made a fist, or our hands have slapped down, or we've waved something off, or we've thumbs down. We use all these expressions with our fingers and with our hands. Our hands and fingers are just an extension of our words and our attitudes, and by extension, what's going on in our hearts. So think about that. Our bodies, our feet, our hands, our fingers, our eyes, our heart. Look at verse 14. His heart plots evil. Check out the inside of the psalmist's lament. Psalm chapter two, uh, 10, verses 2 through 4. In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devices. devises. He boasts of the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked do not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. That's Psalm 10, verses 2 and 4. So, that's why wisdom comes along and says in Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart, for from it springs is the wellspring of life, for it is the wellspring of life. And then in this passage, if you look at verses 16 through 19, he just sort of summarizes all the things he just described in this persona of a person whose feet, hands, fingers, eyes, heart, and all of that is sort of a, a wash with character. Uh, what does God hate? And by the way, why does God say six things the Lord hates, seven are in a, a detestable to Him? That comes up in Hebrew language a lot, and it's, it's, a, it's a learning device. It's a, it's a device simply showing um, uh, 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 the fact that what He's about to say is not an, an exhaustible list, uh, an inexhaustible, no, excuse me, it's not an exhaustible list. It's not something, this is not all that there, there is. And so here the writer is saying there are six things that God hates, actually seven, which is my way of saying to you, there's no end to this list. But let's look at it. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among the brothers. Those are all character-eroding traits. Um, what happens to that person? Look at verse 15. Therefore, disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. You know what wisdom says? If you're taking notes, wisdom says this kind of life, when exposed, brings sudden and complete disaster. Character. You know, I was reminded this morning, over people God's put in my life that have taught me character. Um, one such man was the former senior pastor of this church, Jake Bielig. He's a man of character. I could list dozens and dozens of people, but the reason I mentioned Jake this morning is because when I got up out of the prayer meeting today, one of the guys next to me said, man, I like your shoes. And I looked down at him. These are Jake's shoes. <laughs> You know, one of the blessings God gave me is he gave me Jake's foot size. When, when Jake passed, 
he passed down, his family said, you want some of Jake's, my dad's shoes? And so they gave me his shoes. And Jake loved shoes. <laughs> Jake, he, he had good taste in shoes. And so when I, I've got a few other Jake shoes. And when I put on, and I tell, I'm literally walking in Jake's <laughs> shoes. And I say that because often when I put on these shoes, I think of his character. And I say to myself, I want to be like Jake. And I say to God, not always, but I say to God, God, thank you for a man of character. You got people in your life that have demonstrated character? You know, walk in their shoes. Sometimes literally, but figuratively. Find the person. Find a few that you can say, man, if God will give me grace, I want to be like that person. As iron sharpens iron, so one sharpens another. I spent the last three days, I took two of my best buddies. I've got about a thousand best buddies. But two guys I consider kind of like spiritual sons to me in some ways. And we went backpacking. We went... Uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. We chose the worst weather weekend possible or three days. We went over a pass of 9,000 feet, sleeting in snow. Can you believe it? Summer, June. Crazy. But I love these guys. One of them's sitting right over there. One of them's maybe up there. But you know, we just, we sharpen each other. There are guys in my life that sharpen me. You got guys sharpening you? You got gals? You're a gal sharpening you. We sharpen each other. Because there's a character deficit in our culture. And God wants you. God wants me. I'm looking at a young man right down here. Ross, I've been getting to know. He's a good young man. God's doing something in his life. And you know, I think about sometimes, Ross, I think about, you know, you look at my life. Sometimes we look at people and we we forget that people are looking at us, how we live, how we talk, how we share our life. We are sharing our lives with each other. And in this body right here, there's a lot of beautiful things. People coming more and more like Christ because we're looking, watching each other. But watch this. Our eyes are not focused. Our eyes are on Jesus. Because you watch me enough you're going to be disappointed in me. At some point, I know you will. We're human, but our eyes are on Jesus. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. That's what it's about. Body of Christ, can we just invest deeper in that in our lives to become men and women of character so that someday when we're sitting in our living room with, with our wife who's had a stroke we can be telling our story of how God's built character into our hearts. Amen?